You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. Today is going to be our follow-up episode with Dr. Dave Stalneck, where we're discussing the current outbreak of avian flu what we know about it, what you as, as members of the waterfowl community, as people that admire and enjoy birds, what you need to know about this. And so uh, we have a few more questions for, for Dr. Stalneck. So Dave, welcome back to the podcast. All right. Thank you. Dave, I want to start out by talking about Europe. You mentioned avian flu and their experience with it uh, in Europe. And if my reading is correct, the current virus that we have was first detected in Europe, was it 2021? Is that what I read? You can tell me if that's correct or not. So I found myself wondering what they learned about that about this particular virus, or is are we dealing with a little bit of a mutation from, from that point? What can you tell us there? Yeah, this, this virus showed up probably several years ago, I mean, in, in, in Europe, this particular uh, genetic version of it. Um, and when it showed up, there's one thing that really started happening, and that is that it stuck. It, it really, it was the same thing was coming back year after year and causing mortality in wild birds and, 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 and spilling over into poultry also. So that was, that was really the, 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 the big thing. I think when this thing started and we first started hearing uh, reports from wild birds, our real question was, is this just spillover from poultry? Because there were poultry flocks infected all over the place in Asia, is this spillover from poultry, or is it, or is it really a wildlife reservoir at this point? And I think it just—I think it is a wildlife reservoir now for this particular virus, 
but it took many years to to get to that to get to that point. And I think that's that's really probably the the scariest part of the recent European uh, experience is that it appears to be in wild bird populations and maintained. Did they? Did they see a fair number of poultry infections in Europe to the point where they had to go through the whole depopulation process? I've not read up on exactly what they uh, what the effects were there. You know, it what we're seeing right now in the U.S. just mirrors exactly what they were seeing have been seeing in Europe. They're seeing infected ducks, seeing mortality in ducks and geese. They're seeing spillover into raptors and other birds not normally associated with flu, and they're seeing spillover into poultry. And it, it's, it's really, it's it just what we're seeing here is, I mean, we, we, we could have predicted what we're seeing here just by looking at the last three or four or five years in, from, from the European situation. So they've been dealing with it for a number of years is what you're saying? Yes. Wow. And any read on population level effects for their wild birds or and and how many what percentage of their poultry operations have been infected is this just sort of a rolling thing that they're dealing with you know uh, they they have a large they have a large number of poultry operations outbreaks every year i couldn't give you a number i couldn't give you a percentage on that um the one thing the one thing they have in europe also that we probably don't see too much of here are domestic population Domestic duck populations. So they have quite a few of the outbreaks are in domestic duck populations. That's not hard to figure out the connection there. Um, but they pretty much handle it the same way we do. You mentioned about do they depop? Yes, they, yes, they do. And I think the European response to flu in, in, in poultry is exactly the same that we have in here. We get it in poultry flocks and we stamp it out through depopulation. So that, that's been an ongoing thing there uh, associated with this. We've mentioned poultry a great deal in these two episodes already, and so I want to explore that a little bit more. Why is it such a risk to poultry operations? Why are those birds so vulnerable to this? They're just incredibly susceptible, turkeys more so than chickens. And uh, these, these high-path viruses, my first experience with influenza when I was a field biologist, there was an outbreak in the 80s in Pennsylvania, high path. And this was one that evolved locally from a U.S. virus. And we were involved in looking at the wildlife associated with these flocks and everything. And I will never forget going into a poultry house with 15,000 birds and seeing a 95% mortality. We're basically laying on the ground. It's catastrophic for poultry. And uh, the problem with the, the, the issue with, the, I think, that a lot of poultry producers face is their size. We're talking about some some facilities have a million birds on the premise. And when you get a mortality rate like that in there, and you have an outcome that says, okay, we got to depopulate all these, you're, you're talking about major economic losses. And so is it also the fact that, that these birds in poultry operations, it's a commercial, it's a, it's a commercial operation. They, those Birds are not given an opportunity, quite frankly, for natural selection to take place at that population level, right? And so, is it just because they're they're um, they're used for protein production for consumption by humans, right? So they're not allowed to go through that evolutionary process of developing immunity and then having that immunity kind of permeate through the population as a result of successive generations. Am I thinking about that correctly? You, you probably you probably are, and and the other thing that that 
is important is that, you know, Galliform birds like turkeys, they're normally not even associated with the normal influenza uh, epidemiology. So even even in, in the wild, these there's no evolutionary, you know, response to these things. So even, even the ones that are derived from the wild birds probably do, do, really do not have any sort of resistance either. Well, that leads me to wonder about vaccines at that commercial poultry level. Is that how much is that talked about? Is that a feasible uh, solution? It, it's it's talked about a lot. <laughs> and vaccines, I, I I'm not a I'm not a vaccinologist and I'm not a poultry producer. But I'll, 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 the argument against vaccines for use in poultry is that a vaccine is not perfect. And we mentioned COVID a lot. But it's another really wonderful parallel that you can get vaccinated for something and it keeps you from getting sick and it keeps you from dying, but it does not completely protect you from getting infected. Okay, so and if you actually look at poultry, you know, there's a lot of export of poultry and there's there's a lot of movement of poultry. And if there's a probability that these things are infected, you're going to have issues with shipping them overseas or moving them or anything else. That's the really the biggest issue associated with it. And that leads naturally to the next question that I want to talk about. And this may not be your area of expertise, but I at least want to ask you uh, about what we've learned regarding transmission between wild populations and poultry operations one way or the other. What's the... Uh, I've read a number of papers. There's evidence that there, there's... There's evidence of both, is my understanding. At some level, you can find a paper that talks about evidence of transmission from a wild population into a poultry operation. It doesn't really talk about the mechanism by which it got there, whether it was tracked in on the boots of a worker or whatever. What do we know about all that, Dave? It's, you know, it's just one of those mysterious areas that everyone knows it happens, but to get the smoking gun is really very difficult. And... There's been all sorts of theories about people tracking in feces, waterfowl feces. There's theories about maybe other species of birds acting as a bridge vector, such as a sparrow, a house sparrow or something, you know, interacting with the poultry and flying into a poultry house. There's even been theories about rodents moving it in on their fur. But to my knowledge, none of them really hold water at this point in time. My gut feeling is that it involves a person somehow, way, shape, or form. But they're just, you know, I, I don't want to really badmouth the idea that no one's figured this out yet. Because if you kind of think about it, you're always working in reverse. You're looking for ghosts. You've had the outbreak, and now you're trying to reconstruct it. And there are probably little subtle things that are just very difficult to detect. Uh, I've worked in a lot of situations around poultry houses and I will say I've never seen a duck in one that flew in. But there obviously is a connection. And we, why we know there's a connection is that we've actually looked at the viruses that we get out of waterfowl and that, we, that are, show up in poultry. And quite frankly, they're the same. I mean, they are the source, but the specifics of how they get in is really... And I imagine poultry producers get very frustrated at this. But I, I have no answer for that. Do you do you work a lot with USDA on any of the guidelines that they're helping to establish for you know biosecurity measures at any of these poultry facilities? Are you involved in any of that? We we really don't don't work on on those sort of guidelines, but we do work on them uh, with trying to evaluate the risk 
associated with 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 waterfowl, how much they shed, and that sort of thing. And we 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 work with the USDA lab here in, in Athens uh, a lot with uh, going exp- with experimental infections and that sort of thing. Here, as we get to sort of the latter part of this particular episode, Dave, we'll be we'll be discussing guidance. Where can people find guidance? Who are the authorities that are in charge of surveillance operations or surveillance programs and so forth? And on this front, if people are interested in learning about uh, any type of security measures, sanitation measures that they need to be taking if they're in or around poultry operations. Large, I'm, I'm sure large poultry operations have this stuff pretty well uh, locked down. They have procedures in place because so much is riding on it. But maybe smaller scale backyard poultry operators, where do those people need to go for guidance on, on kind of proper precautions? Is that at the state level or is there some sort of federal uh, coordination. I, actually, both. Actually, both. And uh, I would I, the, the USDA websites will have all that information on there in different ways, shapes, and forms. I guarantee every state, especially states with large poultry operations, also will have it. And that's that's generally the way they the way way it works. Uh, if you're looking for public health, the CDC has some wonderful guidelines on there and uh they're easy, easy to find and they have some associated with people you know actually handling wild birds and that sort of thing and that, that hunters could look at and so would that like what would you say and if you if you want to defer to those guidelines that's fine but just for the sake of me asking the question if we have a, a listener who's a waterfowl hunter but they have six chickens in their backyard what type of precaution should they be taking when it comes to hunting season later this year well, I think anything they bring back from those ducks, they need to keep away from the chickens. I mean, it's, it's, that's, it's it really is that simple and that complicated all at the same time. Um, I mean, even tracking in mud or feces on your boots uh, is a possible source of those chickens. Uh, the thing about it is the also the thing about it is you know if if they do see something in those chickens, if they they, they see mortality or morbidity, to report it, and that is generally reported through the state. Okay, the State Department of Agriculture, because we, we definitely want to, if it is something there, we want to end it as, as quickly as possible. That's a good point. I wanted to. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation, united by our passion for hunting 
the outdoors, conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation, take it outside. Emphasize that, and we can do it multiple times, and that is like, it's one thing for us to have this conversation, provide this expert information from your perspective, and then kind of walk away from it. But the other thing that I wanted to leave people with is how do they need to be prepared when they go in the field, you know, too often, if something happens to us in the field, if we observe something, we think to ourselves, oh, well, I'll look that up later, and then and figure out who I need to report to, and then one thing happens, and then you get busy doing something else, and then you kind of forget about it. So one of the things that I was talking to someone about is that if if we can do our part to prepare people with what they need to do when they encounter something in the field, now is the time to do that, right? So in this particular example, if you see something, you're saying report it to your state Department of Agriculture, that's likely going to be the first place you would report it. And so basically what that means is individuals listening to this, equip yourself now with that information for the for your state uh, uh, agency, Department of Agriculture agency, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it is. We have a lull here and it's, it's an excellent time to reflect and prepare as, as best we can. And, you know, I want to say there's really no need to panic, but because we, we really do have some, we really can think about this and, and sort of figure out, you know, what we need to do, what we need to keep our eyes open for, and, and that sort of thing. It's a good point. On that same topic of how our state and federal agencies are responding, I've mentioned surveillance programs a couple of times. Those are, I think, ongoing. I believe I saw a presentation a few weeks ago, maybe a couple of months ago now, where they had targets for the number of birds to sample in the tens of thousands. What can you say? What can you tell us about uh, what you've heard, what you know about those federal and state surveillance operations? And and people, our audience will be interested to know that our flyway councils and the technical committees of those councils are heavily, heavily involved uh, in that particular process. But what can you add to that, Dave? Okay. Uh, as far as surveillance, there's really two kind of approaches to surveillance right now. And uh, part of it is Part of it is uh, probably the two federal agencies that are most involved with that is Wildlife Services with USDA and then USGS, okay? Um, and, and that's the sort of the, the, the Madison lab. The, that's the wildlife disease, I forget. Yeah, it's uh, the National Wildlife Health Center, I believe. Uh, but the, the, the approaches there are, are a little bit different, okay? Wildlife Services has, they're mainly going to, to uh to look at ducks, banded ducks, live ducks, sort of an active type surveillance thing, and hunter kill ducks. And I'm sure there's hunters here that have seen their ducks swab by wildlife services. And really what they're geared toward is looking specifically for viruses that can be high path viruses. And these are normally viruses, the subtype H5 and H7. Okay. So they're going to be swapping birds, and most of the surveillance will be associated probably with the banding season, which will start probably in July, I would imagine, and going through the hunting season. Now, USGS has a really different kind of a different approach to that, where they're looking at uh, they're they're looking at sort of a passive surveillance, and these are birds that are primarily you know mortality and morbidity. 
that are submitted for an autopsy and, and really to determine what, what killed them. So they get a lot of data from both, both sections. Now, right here, we do both, okay? And there's, there's people outside of the federal agencies that are also doing work. And uh, we work, you, you were absolutely right about the flyways and, and the states. We work all the time with them, and they're wonderful to work with. Um, but, like, we're funded through NIH and through some of the, our, our state contracts. Uh, and flu is of interest, so we, we, we work on it. But we do both. We do the passive surveillance through our clinical service. And then, as, as you know, with, like, a shorebird work is active. We're working with banters looking at live birds and releasing them after they're sampling. But that's the sort of thing. It's, it's, they're literally, you're right, there are thousands of birds uh, in, associated with this. And I don't know what the quota is going to be for USDA wildlife services this year, but it's in the tens of thousands, okay? And I know they're going to cover all the flyways this year. This year, was, this year was limited budget and limited opportunity, and it was just Atlantic and Pacific. So that will be corrected next year. And I, I imagine that there will be a lot of surveillance starting up in midsummer. And that inf- that data is going to tell us uh, more than anything else the prevalence rate. What's the percentage of the population that sampled that is that has the virus or has an indication of having been infected, right? We'll be able to get that as well. Do they look for antibodies as well as the virus itself? They won't be looking at for, for antibodies. And the, what antibodies will tell you is we, we actually made, we were, had a discussion yesterday about maybe starting some of that work. And what that will be, that will be important to look at as sort of a, a, a data set to kind of complement the others to look at who has had it before, who's been exposed. What they're going to be looking at is who is infected, okay? And I'm an epidemiologist, and I simplify this really easy, really quickly. They're looking at the who, what, when, where, and how, okay? Not the how so much. We got to figure that out. But you know, who's infected? Where are they infected? When are they infected? And 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 really, how much is out there? And then, in terms of seasonality, I think you mentioned this a couple of times. It's a virus that does very well in colder environments, colder times of the year. Um, that means that we're getting to the point of the year where we're gonna we should see the prevalence drop off. But then it's going to pick back up in late summer and fall. And part of that, if I understand correctly, is going to be because we have so many young birds that have a very naive immune system. Is that right? Yeah. And, and again, getting back to COVID, you heard all this about herd immunity. It is the story with flu. And really, a, the, the herd immunity in a, in a waterfowl population with flu, uh, it starts at zero with the hatchlings, right? Uh, as soon as they get together and start getting together as a group, pre-migration staging, that sort of thing, is when all the naives get together. And that's when flu takes off. And as herd immunity builds in that population, it declines. So by the time these birds get down to Georgia, population immunity, if you look for antibodies, it's 60, 70%. Now that's overall. So there's some little nuances associated with specific subtypes, but it's really high. Most ducks have seen it. The time you get to the spring, it's it's close to eighty percent. I mean, eighty percent of the birds have already been infected with at least one flu virus, and we've done some serology that actually has shown that they are infected with multiple flu viruses. So, it, so it's it's really a, a herd immunity on an annual basis 
that sort of drives the, the cycle. So, Dave, I'm guessing we don't know very much about different levels of susceptibility among uh, across the different species of waterfowl, other than kind of based on what we would we would infer from their behaviors, their tendency to congregate in large groups or, or things of that nature. Is that right? Yeah, it's it's really ducks. Actually, dabbling ducks with the low path viruses seem to have the highest infection rates. Uh, geese to a lesser extent, uh, although. They see a lot of they see a lot of flu. All of them see a lot of flu over their, their lifetime, and then you'll see other water birds that get infected that are associated with duck habitats. We've we've had isolates from grebes and coots and and all the other other birds that you see associated uh, with with waterfowl habitats. As far as species specific differences, it's been it's really kind of a tricky thing. I believe they exist, and I believe they probably exist for mortality and or potential for mortality associated with these high path strains but it's 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 difficult especially with this one we don't know yet one thing that's interesting if you actually look at the list of birds especially ducks that have are, are showing up on the mortality it's an enormous number of diving disproportionate number of diving ducks that's interesting it. it is interesting and for the life of me i can't explain that but it's certainly something to look at in in, in the future. Uh, so, Dave, I'm going to have a few sort of quick questions for you. This we're getting into to the point where it's like, what do hunters need to know? What type of advice do we need to provide to them? And so, the the first thing that I'll say, and I'll ask you if you agree with this, it, it's a question I had the other day. A gentleman asked me, number one, is this is what I'm hearing about there being a, an avian flu, uh, is it real? Uh, of course it's real. It's out there. We've talked extensively about it here. The other question he had was, is it a concern for wild duck populations to a point where we would expect it to you know, uh, cause a, a drop, a noticeable, measurable drop in the, in the population? I don't hear anyone saying we expect that to occur. I don't hear anyone saying that we're overly concerned about that happening. Is that the same thing that you're hearing? Uh, that's exactly is exactly what we're hearing. And I just want to qualify that a little bit. And with flu, actually anything can happen. So right now, you're absolutely correct. We need to keep our eyes on it. And so then, how all of this translates to hunters and their decision to hunt, and and how that what they make in that regard this fall, is it safe for people to continue hunting this fall, given what we're hearing about bird flu? And I'm mainly thinking about risk to them as individuals or any any of the other risks, quite frankly? What would you advise people? Well, as, as a duck hunter, I will tell you that I would go in a heartbeat. Okay? I'm not, I'm not, I, w- I, I don't think we need to be concerned to the point where we're changing our hunting behavior at this point in time, as far as going or not. We may change it slightly on how we, how we do things in the field. And what would that be? That was the very next question. Is Do we need to be taking any precautions this year that perhaps we, we don't typically in response to this? Okay, I think, I think the one thing I would do, and I know everybody is sick of hearing this from COVID, but I would wash my hands a little more. <laughs> a few more just to be safe. And that, that, is, that is actually on the CDC guidelines, and, and I, I would happen to agree with that a lot. There's no need to wear a mask or anything like that at this point in time. Uh, the one thing that we probably should be talking about and thinking about are carcasses and the disposal of carcasses, though. Because an infected bird is carrying a lot of virus. And if you dispose that carcass on the landscape, and something like an eagle eats it, scavenges on it, it 
could kill that bird. So that is one of the considerations. Uh, the other consideration, and I think I mentioned this in an earlier conversation about most of the virus being in the viscera, if you can actually avoid that, or if you're in there to wear gloves, yeah, if, that, you, if you feel inclined, it, that that would be another another option. That was going to be my question because I recalled you saying that. And when we say viscera, we're talking about the um, the organs, the entrails, the, the inside of the body cavity of of the duck. And so, yeah, I had a question here. I had jotted down: Do we need to wear gloves? I've actually kind of made it a practice to start wearing gloves when I do those types of things, uh, both when I'm cleaning a deer as well as uh, cleaning uh, cleaning ducks or, or other kind of harvested wild game. And and I've I don't notice notice any you know, kind of change in my ability to, to effectively dress the animal. So it's, it, it's a pretty easy practice to adopt, especially in this kind of situation, right? And I agree. I agree. And then what do we do? I think we've touched on this already. If we see a sick or dead bird, I guess the first thing that I would say is, you know, don't let your dog retrieve it. Uh, that may be a, especially if it's a, if it's an injured bird, a, 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 a bird that appears sick, some people may temp- may be tempted to give their dog some retrieving experience. That's probably something we should advise against in this particular case. There's no sense taking a risk, an unnecessary risk, and that, I would regard that as one. And then if we see birds, dead or dying birds, should hunters remove those from the field? Should we just report them? Should we have handy the phone number to our state uh, agricultural agency? What, what's the protocol there? You know, I, I think if you're seeing mortality, and especially if, if you're seeing birds with neurologic signs and, you know, sort of nervous issues, you know, I would report it to this, 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 the state, I would the, the Fish and Wildlife Agency, and let them decide what, what to do about it. I mean, they're the, they're the professionals out there, and they're the ones who are, you know, tasked with, with, with looking for this and, and looking at it. And I, but I would report it. It, it, it's, it, it, it may not go anywhere, but it, it, it's, it's worth a phone call. And I think I have one final question before asking you if we've, if we've omitted anything else of importance. And, and I want to ask this question because we had you give a seminar to our entire conservation staff a few weeks ago. And in the question and answer period, two people asked about this particular issue, asked this particular question. Most of our discussion in terms of the natural reservoir and, and the of this virus being with wild waterfowl and most of the sampling that we're talking about, surveillance work we're talking about occurring with waterfowl, one of the reasons for that is going to be they're migratory birds. We've talked about the transmission rate and the method and all that kind of stuff, but then they're migratory birds. They travel north, south, east, west, across large geographies and and provide a pretty good vehicle for spreading that virus across long, long distances. What about turkeys? People wanted to know if wild turkeys are susceptible. They haven't received as much attention, at least in terms of the surveillance that I'm aware of. And part of that may be because they don't migrate. They're not that potential vehicle for transmission over long distances. That's just my kind of thinking of it. Is that true? And then what do we know about their susceptibility? I am unaware of any experimental infections of wild turkeys. And I think I'm unaware of it because I don't think, I think someone wouldn't do it because they already assume they're highly susceptible. I mean, domestic turkeys are highly susceptible. And there's no reason to believe that wild turkeys would not be. There have been, I think during that seminar, there had been no cases at that point in time, but there has been now. And I believe it was in 
it was, a, it was some wild turkeys associated with a infected premise that must have, I think they had pen-raised pheasants on that, on that premise. So it's not difficult to figure out how they were infected, okay? Now, the big question, my personal feeling on this, and I think, I think, I'm, I think this is a consistent with other people, is that they would be highly susceptible. If infected, they probably would die. Um, hopefully, transmission within the population as a whole would be somewhat limited. And, and, and that's what we're betting the farm on if it gets into turkeys. And that's because of that mode that, that the most effective mode of transmission you talked about was through the water. And we don't see turkeys wading, swimming, foraging deeply in the water, that type stuff, right? Right. And, you know, in highly dense populations, I would not even venture a guess. But hopefully there's enough separation between them that we would not get a lot of transmission going through the population. I hope we never see it. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm with you on that, and I know a lot of our listeners are too. One final, one question that I missed here, I skipped over it. I think uh, the answer to this is going to be pretty straightforward. In this time where we we know there's a, a high path outbreak, people go waterfowl hunting, they harvest birds, they bring them home, they follow the precautions in, 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 field, in dressing those birds. What about cooking those birds, cooking and consuming those birds? Okay. That has been done over and over again by the domestic poultry industry, as you can imagine. Okay, and safe. I would not. I would not even be remotely concerned about it. Uh, handling the raw meat. Uh, yeah, wear gloves if you, if you're worried about it, or wash your hands. Just a simple wash your hands. And we're doing some evaluations right now, trying to look at loads in meat, and it appears to be relatively low, which is a good sign. Okay, that means not there, but it's re- relatively low concentration. So, but cooking, cooking will take care of it. Dave, have I missed anything? You've talked about avian flu. I, I, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even care to venture how many, how many of your hours over the past six months or so have been focused on avian flu. Is there anything that I've missed that's particularly important to our audience here? Yeah, the the only thing I I, I would emphasize is a spillover to other birds through carcasses and that sort of thing. And we are seeing some, again, probably not population impacting mortality, maybe locally on eagles. And they're having a lot of issues with black vultures in Florida now. So we don't want it to get in those kind of birds. And and hunters can 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 help with that by not not actually like actually, you know, taking charge of carcasses and not putting them on the landscape. It's an important thing. And I think you I think you mentioned this, but I want to uh, I want to hear it again because I I missed it. What should hunter hunters do with those carcasses? Bury them? Is that going to be the easiest way to get rid of that? That's a tough. It's a really tough question. You know, if a <laughs> few ducks as I kill, I could put them in a plastic bag and send them to the landfill, and that would be a place to you know a place thing to do. I think that the people who may have have trouble with this, and and I I don't have any good suggestions. Or, you know, if you're at a lodge or something, you have large numbers of carcasses. But again, we got time. Let's think about it. You know, what people do is they compost it, you know, and maybe that's an option. I don't know. 
Dave, we'll probably check back in with you or one of your colleagues later this fall to get an update on what we've learned through the surveillance work that's occurred now and will continue through the summer. And then certainly once we get into the banding season, we're going to get a lot of information there. Maybe we'll have some more guidance on how to uh, what, what type of carcass management we need to be doing. And so we'll pass that along to our listeners and any other changes that we may learn about between now and, and hunting season. So, Dave, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for your expertise. Uh, thanks for joining us on the Ducks Unlimited podcast. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure. A very special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Dr. Dave Stalneck with the University of Georgia College of Veterinary Medicine and director of the Southeastern Cooperative Wildlife Disease Study. We thank our producer, Chris Isaac, for the great work he does on these podcasts. And we thank you, the listener, for joining us and for your support, passion, and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside.